0: Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Robert Douglas Furhurst, whose new book is The Turning Point, a year that changed Dickens and the world. I hope this is right. <laughs> Robert, welcome. Now, you've written about Dickens's young life before. What made you return to his midlife? Because this, this book kind of covers 1851, essentially, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. It's, I mean, in some ways, this is the start of Dickens's midlife crisis, uh, mm. which goes on for quite a long time. But, but it's also um, the nation's midlife crisis as well. It's not just because it's the pivot of the year historically, a uh, pivot of the century historically. It's also because it's the year of the Great Exhibition. It's the year that Britain uh, announces itself to the world as uh, the great industrial powerhouse. It's the time when Britain uh, sort of invites people from abroad, but also is sending people out from Britain overseas. Uh, that happens in real life, but it also happens through information technology. It's the year the first um, telegraph cable is laid across the channel, uh, for instance. So, so for that reason, um, I wanted to explore it as a kind of pivot that links the great novelist of the age and the age itself, given that. The phrase Dickensian and Victorian are often seen as almost synonymous. It's going back to something I touched on in my earlier book, uh, Becoming Dickens. I suppose in the sense that what interests me in life writing is all the clutter and loose ends and mess of real life that biography normally tries to tidy away. It, it's, it's a bit like the Radio 4 show, Just a Minute. Yes, and just a minute you have to tell a story without repetition or hesitation or deviation. Real life is nothing but repetition and hesitation and deviation. And I suppose what, what interests me is the way that biography often tidies up the kind of shapeless business of living so that everything becomes like a sentence winging its way towards the full stop. Um, you know, meet meeting a target, whereas life, as it is, full of you know mess and clutter and loose ends, uh, often doesn't therefore satisfy the kind of storytelling urge that we might have. And biography sort of tries to satisfy that urge, but it might be that if you're going to tell someone's life in a way that's more true to the way they experienced it, you have to make it a bit messy. And I suppose that's what I've, I've been interested in both of my Dickens books, try, trying to restore the sense of contingency and surprise and, yeah, mess.
0: Well, I mean, that's very characteristically Dickensian. I think you quote Orwell saying the outstanding, unmistakable mark of Dickens's writing is the unnecessary detail. That there, I mean, mess and clutter sort of is, is Dickens's world, as we think of it, isn't yeah. it?
1: It is. But what Dickens uh, also does, of course, is he redeems mess, ...by filtering it through uh, a plot. And so that what seems to be other styles of a novel, like Bleak House... ...which is the the great novel that I I explore the, the development, the gestation of in The Turning Point... ...what a novel like that does, it begins with confusion. You don't know where you're going or what you're looking at. Fog is the kind of the key marker of the opening pages... But then gradually things resolve themselves, connections start to be made, stories start to develop, and eventually you realise that, to use the word that Dickens himself keeps coming back to in the novel, connection, everything is connected, if only you knew how to look at it. And that's the job of the novelist. The novelist's job is to take clutter and confusion and redeem it by giving it a sense of structure and pattern and purpose. Um, The Great Exhibition, of course, does something different by taking just a sheer mass of stuff. You know, whether it's, you know, an early version of Braille or a silver false nose or it's a collapsible coffin or all the other kind of weird and wacky things which were packed into the the Crystal Palace. The catalogue, I suppose, is the the printed form that tries to organise all that mess. But people who visited it simply enjoy being overwhelmed by the mess by the kind of sheer kind of glorious clutter and the potentiality of of, of modern life. Dickens, though, hated it. He hated it <laughs> precisely because, no. it, because it didn't have a plot. You know, it, it's like being surrounded by the raw materials of a story, but without a leading character and without a plot to organise itself around. Dickens,
0: I mean, you know, you said, said obviously biography imposes order generally, and to an extent, you know, there's something quite sort of, wiggish about saying, right, this was the turning point, this is heading towards something else. In Dickens' own life, did that year feel to him like a turning point? Do you think he, he registered that, that something was changing and pivoting?
1: I think so. I mean, the, the letter that I quote at the end of my prologue is him talking to another writer and saying that he feels on a tiptoe of expectation. Now, of course, as Dickens would then go on to show with one of his later novels, great expectations don't always lead to great conclusions. Your, ex, you know, your expectations can going to be kind of frustrated as well as fulfilled. But yes, the, the fact that it is such a traumatic year for him personally, with the death of his father, the death of his baby daughter, a, a huge house move, which, as any of us who have done that know, is one of those traumatic things that, that we can uh, ever go through. Plus, um, all the other events that are going on in his life, including his attempt to reform the entire literary profession through the development <laughs> of this new fund, the Guild of Literature and Art, plus uh, his kind of toing and froing when it comes to, say, his summer holidays and sort of buzzing back and forth from from Broadstairs broad to London. All these things do contribute, I think, to his sense that the world is changing. His place in it is changing. And what he needs to do is to produce a kind of writing which is going to be adequate to that sense of change. And that, I think, is what Bleak House is and does.
0: This this idea of his place in the world, particularly as a novelist, I mean, you do put a lot of weight on this formation of the Guild of... It's the Guild of Writers and Artists, is it, or Literature and Art. Art? Guild of Literature and Art, that's it. Is that a kind of forerunner
1: of the Society of Authors. Yes, it is. Uh, I mean it's it's one of many uh forerunners and, and and what's interesting about Dickens' attempt is that like all the others it's a failure. It, it it doesn't do what he sets out for it to do. He wants it to be this grand charitable uh foundation that will support good writers when they're on their uppers and they're down on their luck when the marketplace has moved by. Basically it's a kind of insurance scheme. That That's how he wants to set it up. But then because he gets Bulwer Lytton, Bulwer, it was a dark and stormy night, Lytton involved, yeah. who of course, as someone who is a slightly kind of aristocrat, wants to therefore see it more as a kind of charitable enterprise by building arms houses on his estate. It has these kind of mixed motives right from the start and ends up collapsing under the weight of everyone's expectations. It never really goes anywhere. And that, again, is something that interests me because we think of, you used the word whiggish earlier, we think of Dickens's life as having this teleological drive towards success in which every step is a step on the road to the domination of both the Victorian age and also arguably our age in terms of you know, the modern novel. At the time, it didn't feel like that. And, and it's not just his, his life is full of clutter and mess and disappointments and rage and, you know, all the other things that, that we all experience. It was full of failures as well. And the Guild was one of the most time-consuming of those failures.
0: Did it, I mean, Mark, a change in the idea. I mean, we think of novelists and, you know, Dickens preeminently as being, you know, really important high cultural artefacts. At the time you know was was there a sort of transition to to that that was going on? I mean is there a sense that the novel wasn't seen just then as more necessary than a kind of disreputable diversion?
1: It was developing that 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 again is why Dickens' career is so interesting because it spans the development of the novel from or the novelist, as as a as a figure who starts off as kind of a a rackety public entertainer um and ends up as A sort of high priest or priestess of culture, which is the way that then later critics like F. R. Leavis like to treat writers like George Eliot. You know, as if they are somehow the moral compasses of an otherwise directionless age. So, So, Dickens, his career spans that, but he also helps to create that, and he creates it through the development of novels which are increasingly socially committed and. At the same time as being funny, also morally serious, that they're not just designed to entertain. They're also designed to inform and educate and all those other kind of wreathian things that we now think of as being, you know, part of public entertainment, like you know the BBC and so on. But Dickens is the one who's helping to generate that change, as well as himself becoming what was at the time called, uh, increasingly, a celebrity. He, he's the first great celebrity author, at least as far, as far as novelists are concerned. But Byron, slightly earlier, is a celebrity when it comes to the chattering classes, and it's to do with kind of sex, really. Dickens is never really associated with sex, and only ever writes about it very indirectly and obliquely. But but he himself is seen as the great Victorian, which is as I said earlier, it's why the words Victorian Dickensian often seen as interchangeable terms.
0: I mean, that that enormous success, that celebrity... I mean, it's interesting that, with you know, you say he's worried about the vagaries of the market, but nobody seems to have mastered the market in literature in the way... I mean, you say he made £11,000 out of Bleak House, which at the time was kind of an absolute fortune. You know, nobody mastered the market in that age like him. And yet... There's this anxiety. Is that just the tug of the blacking factory at his elbow always that you know, you've got sort of Thackeray, who's a sort of rather aristocratic, secure novelist saying you know, we don't need any any charity. You know, let the market take care of it. He's very sort of Hayekian about literary success. And Dickens is the one who's is kicking Thackeray's ass, really, but is in the market, but is more worried about stipends and
1: subsidy and that sort of thing it is the tug of his childhood the tug of the blacking factory it's the example of his father you know the, the feckless uh kind of father who is only ever one step ahead of the bailiffs that i think haunts dickens his his own needs financially become larger i mean 1851 uh is when catherine becomes pregnant again and Dickens is astonished as if he has no part in this. <laughs> uh, but then, in you know, 1852, the last of his children uh, is born. You know, huge family, uh, increasing uh, kind of commitments uh, kind of charitably uh, and to his own extended um, family. So it's as if Dickens never has enough. He always wants more. He always needs more. He never feels secure, either financially or socially. Um, And of course, for him, those two things go hand in hand, because what is generating the money? It's popularity. It's the Dickensian brands. It's the fiction that he's producing. So therefore, security financially is bound up with security and therefore love, which therefore, again, is the tug of the blacking factory, because that's what he didn't have as a child. So these things are kind of bound up in a very kind of messy package.
0: That you mentioned the family and the, the Catherine's pregnancy. I mean, a decisive event in the book is the death in infancy of his daughter Dora, his ninth child. Plot but spoiler, yes, plot <laughs> spoiler. Sorry. I mean, he's. I'm wondering how much you feel that, that affected him because you know he's very sort of. I think you use the word firmness euphemistically. He kind of packs the presumably deeply depressed Catherine after to Morven to take the water cure. He's quite, you know, starchy about this, and quite tough with his grieving wife. Plus, also, she's pregnant with the next child. Like immediately. I mean, is it, was she pregnant before the death of Dora
1: already, or uh, I th- mm, I, we, we need to do the maths? It's roughly the same time, uh, which, which in some ways is is. Even worse, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the thing about Dickens and grief is that he, he, he felt Dora's death very deeply. And we know from accounts of the time that he, he, he just broke down uh, over it. But that word firmness is Dickens's word. Um, he, he felt the need to be uh, firm and to exercise firmness over his nearest and dearest uh, as well. Uh, And in some ways, it's simply that he is a man of his time. In other ways, I suppose it's that he's used to emotion as being something which is eked out and controlled through his writing. And in some ways, writing becomes an act of what therapy, self-disclosure, self-disguise for him. It means he can be deeply emotional about the death of children. You know, witness Little Nell and Paul Dombey and um, um, others, um, and sometimes it's an act of self pity. For instance, the death of a little boy called Dick in Oliver Twist. Why is he called Dick, not Frank? Well, because it's one of the many sort of displaced versions of Dickens that he kind of embeds in his in his own writing. But of course, in writing about these things, he can um, control them. He he can um, see them as part of some larger design. And in real life, I suppose he was quite religious in a kind of distant, distracted kind of way. Um, But on the page, it allowed him to be both extremely emotional and extremely controlled or indeed firm simultaneously.
0: I mean, we know that obviously it went very wrong later in his life and, you know, he tried to actually consign her to a lunatic asylum. Um, But at this stage, how are they? How are they getting on?
1: It, it's very interesting because the letters that we have from the period, a bit like the earlier letters, are full of you know, concern and affection and loyalty. I wouldn't say they were full of spark. I wouldn't say that there was any sense of her as his equal. He speaks to her on the page much as he might have spoken to a, a much-loved servant. I suspect that their relationship at this stage was like an awful lot of marriages both then and since. In other words, a more of a kind of professional relationship based on the upbringing of children and putting up appearances and ensuring that everything worked smoothly um, socially. But we can see the cracks. There are definite cracks. in the way that he deals with Dora's death, first of all, breaking the news to her little by little, paragraph by paragraph, as if she's a child who, who can't be told the truth straight away. And then a weird letter in which he says, I think the shock of it may even do her some good, as if somehow that's what she needed, a kind of a version of a cold shower to bring her to her senses. You know, these things to me suggest the start of his impatience with her that will grow larger and larger over the years, as actually she also is growing larger and larger over the years, as childbearing will do for you. And eventually he cracks. He cracks and he ends up sucking up to someone who is young enough to be one of his own daughters, or indeed one of his own literary heroines, which seems to be her main attraction.
0: Yes, he does have that... I mean, you make you make the point that his sister, his dead sister-in-law, you know, remains beautifully kind of preserved in his mind, while his wife, as a real person, is is harder to get on with.
1: Absolutely, and, and it's one of the reasons why literary figures are terrific because they only age when you want them to. And if you're a child in one of Dickens's novels, first of all, watch out because there's a good chance that you'll snuff it by the end of the novel. And that, of course, if you do snuff, it means that you'll remain forever fixed as kind of pure and angelic. And if you do survive, then you will at least come to the end of the story. And that final full stop will, if not be a nail in a coffin, it will be a a way of pausing your life at that moment. And even if characters, well, a number of readers like thinking of Dickens' characters as living on past that final full stop and having a kind of real life existence... Dickens himself never wrote sequels. You know, it isn't, it's not as if he imagined them living on... No, no, once he'd finished with them, he'd finished with them. The only small exception, I suppose, is um, uh, in the Pickwick papers. You know, a couple of those characters kind of return later, but but only very, very briefly, and as a sort of extra bow in front of the footlights.
0: You, you mentioned that, you know, en passant, that, you know, maybe Dick is quietly coming out, and there are these sort of... Relationships. I mean, Thackeray and Forster and Bulwell-Lytton in particular. You know, I, I mean, where, where what was the sort of emergent shape of the literary scene at the time? I and mean, obviously, Dickens sort of dominates, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, he does. And one of the things which I talk about is the the fact that the household word offices, which is the magazine that Dickens is um, has founded in, in his editing, are in a street just sort of by Covent Garden, which is absolutely saturated with similar publications uh, and other names which were household names at the time, um, some which are still household names, are, are you know, more or less next door neighbours. It's the sense of literally London as being more like a um, a small village in which everyone knows everyone. And even though London itself as a place is getting bigger and bigger, Literary London, maybe not so much. <laughs> maybe literary London is still this um, rather kind of compact, even slightly incestuous world. Although it's incestuous in the sense that it's mostly men. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, occasionally a woman might get a look in. I and mean, they do get a look in, like George Eliot, who comes to London this year and starts up at the Westminster Review.
0: There's a lovely little cameo of her, heard so. Sort of... <laughs> You know, young Mary Ann Evans. Um, and she meets Dickens, doesn't she? Yes. And Dickens thought that she was, thought she was a bloke to sell with, didn't he?
1: Absolutely. That's right. I wrote her a fan letter and, and prided himself on being able to tell someone's sex by their prose style and got it horribly wrong with uh, George Eliot, presumed because she was so brainy, he assumed she must be a man. Uh, and yes, yeah, hor- horribly, <laughs> horribly wrong.
0: Yes. Um, actually, I mean, just as one of the great comic, themes that runs in this book is a a woman's cameo. Rosalina Bulwer-Lytton. What a piece of work. (laughs) Tell us about her.
1: So Rosalina Bulwer-Lytton was the estranged wife of um, the the novelist Edward. It was a dark and stormy light uh, Bulwer-Lytton. They had married, well why did they marry? Presumably for sex because (laughs) there is no other explanation Within a couple of years, the marriage was on the rocks. Um, both were having affairs. Bull Listen was clearly a nightmare uh, to live with or indeed even to know. Uh, she was much cleverer than him. I suspect a much better writer as well if she'd had the chance. She was also absolutely bonkers. So you put all that together and what you get is this woman who is estranged, strange, needs money, has contacts and decides that she's going to dedicate her entire life to public revenge and humiliation of her ex-husband. And that's what she does, including disguising herself as an orange seller and saying she's going to come along and pelt the audience with rotten oranges. No, rotten eggs, that's right. Um, uh, on the night of uh, the play that Borlithan has written for Dickens and his uh, a- a- amateur actors, um, in order to show just how rotten the author is. I mean, she's, she's absolutely brilliant. I mean, she, she's the kind of character you can imagine Dickens writing if she didn't already exist.
0: But these aspects, you mentioned the play, these aspects of Dickens' life that, you know, he's acting, he's doing journalism at a fantastic rate, he's engaged in the philanthropy with this Urania, Urania house, is it called?
1: Urania cottage.
0: Urania yeah. cottage, where, where the sort of home for the women he's helping, helping with. How much does all this stuff run in parallel to his work as as a writer of fiction and how much does it sort of you know feed in or play off it mm. i mean so, is, is there a change in this this period when it all starts to go towards fiction or
1: well that, that's one of the reasons again why i find this year so fascinating so this is him taking a break from big serious long-form fiction you know, he finishes david copperfield at the end of the previous year, at the end of 1850. He doesn't start Bleak House until the end of 1851. So this is a year when all these other projects can can take prominence, and they all then feed into Bleak House. Everything that happens to him this year finds some kind of vantage point or kind of hook in the novel that comes, there, as if the novel is this kind of huge bag into which all his obsessions and memories and frustrations and desires can be put in and sort of mashed together uh, and formed into something else
0: is that a departure for him I mean is Bleak House noticeably and dramatically different in its style I mean you've got some very interesting stuff on on the style of the opening section but but from his previous work does it does it do something that novels haven't done before or that his novels haven't done before
1: yeah, it does. And for two reasons. One is at a formal level, uh, it's his first great experiment with narrative style. So he splits the narrative between a first person narrator and a supposedly omniscient, but actually full of blind spots narrator. And he, and he um, switches back and forth between the two through the whole novel, like someone kind of spinning a coin. You know, heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails. And that's an extraordinary experiment. We, we think of it not now as being extraordinary because, I suppose, of its influence on modernism and those kinds of experiments later on. But but for its time, it's it's extraordinary.
0: There's the formal... You were talking about the formal stuff. I mean, I think you say somewhere, don't you, that the that it's the first time he's used the present tense as a narrative device.
1: Yeah, that that's right. So it, it, it's the first term... It, it's also the first time he... he Has the present tense driving the narrative on as if the reader is eavesdropping on this world, uh, is kind of part of this world. It is their world and they're simply getting a different vantage point on it. But also it is the start of something new. It's the period which was influentially referred to as his dark period by one critic, the dark novels. And as I say in the book, it's not, they're not dark because they are you know, gloomy. In many ways, they're the funniest novels he ever wrote. But they are dark in the sense of the density of material in them, uh, which often seems to kind of block out the sun. There's just so much going on. But also dark in the sense that they are his attempt to show the shadow that has been cast by the age itself and to try and show how fiction can offer an alternative. It can, if not redirects the real world, it can offer an alternative path that the world might take, which in this case is the world of connection, social connection. If everyone is connected together, the rich and the poor, the high and the low, the distant and the near, what fiction might offer then is a model of the kinds of responsibilities and affections and needs. But that that idea of connection
0: between particularly classes i mean i think you say it's a year or something since disraeli's novel that minted this idea of two nations comes out and that's for dickens you you talk about the way in which his journalism kind of starts to bring that out but uses novelistic techniques to say you know these people are statistics here they are as individuals is there a sense in dickens that he's he's realized he can go further with fiction than he can with journalism.
1: I think that's right because the journalism has to be rooted in the real and it can't go much beyond the real if it's not if it's going to be believable. If if it's going to be seen as as a, as a uh, as a record of the truth. So he can mess around with imaginary characters and situations, but readers have to recognize it as Uh, a response to the world they know. Fiction also has to be a response to the world that they know, but but it has much more freedom. Uh, The the, the world of the possible measures up against the world of the real. And for Dickens, it's it's that kind of double helix of the imagination and um, uh, memory or documentary realism. So it's fantasy and it's truth. I mean, as he says in in the preface to Bleak House, later on, I've purposely dwelt on the romantic side of familiar things. It, it, it's the familiarity and it's the romance, and how they interweave, interleave, uh, in and out of each other.
0: Mention a, a sort of nearly forgotten figure. I think it's a Henry Mayhew, who was doing something. I mean, his, his he, as I understand it, he was was writing sort of journalistic, but Lively accounts of the lives of working class people for the consumption of, you know, the Victorian bourgeoisie. Did he influence Dickens? Was he, was he in tandem with Dickens? What was that that relationship? Did Dickens take something from him?
1: Well, they they, they knew each other, and in fact, uh, Mayhew had acted in one of Dickens's amateur plays. In some ways, Mayhew was a kind of one of Dickens's many alter egos or kind of shadow shadowy twins you know a a rackety journalist who lived hand to mouth and was always having to come up with new uh, literary get rich quick schemes one of which really stuck which was London Labour and the London Poor which he was writing from Wellington Street just down the road from where Dickens is editing Household Words so they almost certainly passed each other in the streets regularly They, they, they knew each other well enough what he does is interview ordinary working-class people write down their stories using shorthand, um, lightly edit them to remove any sort of swearing and blasphemy, um, and then to simply print them. Uh, And as well as that, there's all sorts of statistical analysis and some magical thinking when it comes to the way that London really works. Um, So he assumes that the world is divided into nomads and settlers, for instance, and he sees street sellers as nomads, whereas people like him are settlers, which is crazy in lots of ways. But at the time, again, it answers a need to see the poor uh, or the working class not as an anonymous and threatening mass, but as discreet individuals like you and me, you and me being middle-class readers. And that, of course, is what Dickens has already been doing. Dickens has already been taking, although fictitious versions of them, but taking working class people and showing that they have the interiority and subtlety and sophistication and sense of joy that middle class people have as well. So in some ways, it's a kind of statistical documentary version of what Dickens has been doing, just as Dickens is offering an imaginative, kind of playful version of what Mayhew is doing. Does
0: does Dickens see that through? I mean, it's... Is his attitude to the working class always kind of, you know, compassionate and enlightened in that way? Or is there a part of him that, you know, recoils from the fear that he might be dragged back down into it or a sense of sort of Victorian decorum? I mean, I'm very struck by something that's even an aside where you say he had had a young woman arrested for swearing in the street.
1: Yes, no, he, he deeply ambivalent. So on the one hand, it was the world from which he had come and therefore he knew it from the inside and therefore had the sympathy that comes from that kind of intimacy. On the other hand, it was a world he'd escaped from and therefore needs to keep at arm's length and therefore sympathy could never become too close contact. And there's a really good example of that um, with... Uh, a, a young labourer, young carpenter, uh, who wrote to him. And uh, they got involved in a correspondence, and this young carpenter was interested in chartism, and so was Dickens. And, you know, they, they sort of seemed to be writing almost as equals until the moment this working-class man criticised William McCready, the great actor, Dickens's friend, at which point Dickens cut him off uh, and pointed out that... McCready was a gentleman, and this carpenter absolutely was not. So, so th- that's the point at which the shutters came down, where the class lines threatened to be crossed permanently. You know, Dickens was brilliant at charity, so long as it didn't involve his own position being compromised in any way. As we all are, of course. The, I mean, the great exhibition is, is Britain announcing its own emergence after the hungry forties and uh, sort of economic depression uh, and so on, as the great technological and industrial powerhouse in the world. But at the same time, there is this great fear that it is rooted in the kinds of poverty without which, of course, industrialisation simply doesn't work. So so you've got this sense in which it's being built on, emerging out of a kind of rather messy social swamp. But always the fear that that swamp might overwhelm it, might come back and reclaim it. One of the reasons why uh, when Duke of Wellington said that, when he realised that the, the building itself was going to be built out of glass, he said glass is damned thin stuff. You know this this fear of rioters of kind of Chartist workers coming and breaking the windows as if it's like a huge greenhouse was 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 there all the way through
0: the national feeling about that that anxiety about the mob is something that plays into the great ex, exhibition doesn't it
1: no no a, a huge success um for you know all all classes and um all parts of the country there there were special trains chartered so that You know, people, entire factories worth of workers could come down and marvel at the latest machinery to discretionary concessions for, you know, working class people. The so-called shilling days where you could get in for a shilling rather than a pound. Um, And there are some funny cartoons in punch of the pounds, i.e. the kind of posh people and the shilling, the kind of workers kind of meeting each other as if the two nations are suddenly looking at each other in the mirror and realising that, in fact, they are not parts of two nations, they are one nation. And and in some ways, that's what the Great Exhibition did. It it provided the centre of a story of Great Britain emerging as something which was kind of unified and singular. And I probably shouldn't say this, but one of the reasons I wrote this book was, of course, after Brexit. It, 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 was, it was me trying to work out where the origins were for this sense of Britain being both isolated from the world, you know, the grand leader of the free world, and at the same time deeply embedded, inextricably embedded in that world and forever trying to reach out and make new connections with it. And it seemed to me that the earliest example of that kind of ambivalence happening was indeed 1851.
0: It didn't materialise, though, did it, quite
1: I, I, I would say as, as a whole, no, but in part, yes. So individual parts, like the description of Fog, or individual characters, individual narrative moments, became well-known and uh, hugely successful and influential. In terms of narrative technique and how innovative and experimental it was, I would say no. No, it wasn't really understood until later writers like Conrad, who was obsessed with Bleak House and kept rereading it as a kind of model for his own narrative experiments. That, I think, is when it had its, its kind of delayed kind of aftershock. It helps to create the conditions for novelists like Conrad. And without it, I mean, who knows what, what or how he would have written
0: I was imagining that Frederick Douglass took it up so much as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Frederick Douglass. Precisely because, again, it's it's suggesting the the necessary connectedness of different classes, which can very easily be extrapolated to race. It is one of the reasons why he loves it so much that his own home office he calls the growlery after, you know, the the the, the, the study in um uh, in Bleak House, the, the building itself. Do
0: you think, I mean, it's a sort of slightly fatuous top ten question, but, but do you think Dickens ever bettered it?
1: It's a good question. I think he did, but not afterwards. <laughs> so I don't think he wrote better than this. I think that some of the other so called dark novels, like Little Diaries, Hard Times, and others, are in some senses aftershocks or echoes of the themes and ideas you see in Bleak House. In Bleak House, I think, is when they're freshest and strongest. The cheat to my answer is that I think the very earliest thing he wrote, Pickwick Papers, in some ways does equal it, because, again, it's a novel that's not really a novel. In the same way that Bleak House, in some ways, is a novel that's pushing at the boundaries of what fiction can do. Uh, the Pickwick Papers does the same thing, but from the other ends of his career, because it's, it's a series of sketches which are gradually emerging as a novel, just as he is therefore emerging as a novelist. What Bleak House shows is, in midlife, he, he's sort of changing the direction of his career and of his writing, and indeed of the novel itself as a form. That,
0: that's something that's visible on the page as well, isn't it? That is, David Copperfield, you know, kind of, he doesn't blot a line. And Bleak House, he's writing much, much slower, isn't he?
1: Well, no, the, 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 you can see um, corrections in... in um, basically, as his career goes on, he becomes more difficult to please himself. He, he, he thinks much more deeply about the weight and the significance of each word, the direction of each sentence. It's much less picaresque. It's much less um, kind of form-free. But Bleak House in particular is, is dense with crossings out and second thoughts ballooning out into the margins and third thoughts overlaid on second thoughts. I mean, his poor printers who, who weren't given clean copies, they were given this stuff to transcribe and then he would correct the versions they came up with. But yeah, you, you, you see that this is writing not just as sort of improvisation, this is writing as labour. This is, this is hard for him.
0: One thing you could never accuse Dickens of was shying away from hard work. <laughs> anyway, I think that probably wraps us up. Robert Douglas-Furhurst, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much indeed.
0: You were listening to The Spectator's Books
1: podcast.
0: I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.